You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resimsinski and I, Niels Karsten-Larsen, where each week we take the polls of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Mark, wonderful to be back with you on this uh, holiday week. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, yesterday was Thanksgiving in the United States. I will say, say it's my favorite holiday. It's hard to commercialize uh, just getting family together, having a good meal and saying what you're really thankful for for the last year. So... Uh, this is my favorite holiday. Yes, and uh, I'm not sure you're thankful for the trends we got so far this year, but uh, maybe something else, I imagine. Yeah, it's been an uh, ouch on a, on a number of different levels. I think that not only for trends, but systematic long-short equity, systematic macro. A lot of the managers have uh, have you know had some uh, speed bumps here over the last year. Indeed, I have a feeling we're going to be talking about that uh, today. But before we do... I'm always curious on a sort of more um, serious point other than the turkey, just to know kind of what you've been focusing on, maybe or paying attention to outside the topics we're going to be talking about uh, in the last couple of months since we last uh, spoke. Anything in particular? Well, it, it always come back to the, to the topics we're going to discuss, but I'll say macro, macro, macro. And I think especially with November in the last month, we really had a strong macro rally. And so, you know, we'll say that there are companies that I call zombie companies in the United States, really poor companies that in a strong macro environment, uh, they'll start having strong rallies better than good companies because they think that the good macro environment will lift all boats. And so you got to sort of focus in on how do you discount macro information over different timeframes? And that, that's really been the focus of a lot of my attention or where I'm sort of you know, thinking about in the last month or so. Yeah, no, very interesting topic, actually. Now, before we get to all of those topics that you brought along, um, as usual, uh, just a few words about the uh, sort of trend following where we are so far this month, so far this year, um, because I do know we're going to be taking a little bit more of a deep dive into some of this uh, in just a few uh, minutes, but actually, because of the holiday in the U.S., it has been quite a a fairly peaceful and quiet week from a performance uh, point of view. Not a lot has moved since last week. My own trend barometer. I had a look at it this morning, and it finished yesterday at 25. I mean, that's one of the lowest readings we've seen so far uh, this year. And and all of the year, if I look at the, um, I mean, people can see it on the website, of course. But if if you look at the the last 12 months most of the time has really been spent at 40 or below, which really indicates, uh, even with this simple tool, that the environment has not been conducive for trend. I think we've had a few days above 50, uh, which is really required for it to be called a good environment for trend following. So I think that, oddly enough, this little tool is a, is, is, is just sort of displaying very well the challenges that trend followers have had this year. Uh, and why the performance so far is negative. And speaking of um, performance, uh, Beta 50 is down 2.7% so far this month, and it's down 0.9% uh, this year. Uh, the SOCGEN CTA index down 3.3% so far this month, and, and about the same for the year. Uh, trend index down 4.67%, down 367 for the year. And the short-term traders index down 1.18% for the month and one, and down 3.65% for the year. So even though it's been challenging, I will say I think that overall the industry is holding up pretty well after a super strong uh, 2022, of course. Um, so maybe not surprising that there's a little bit of give back so far this year. Not much give back, so to speak, uh, on equities. They are up strong in November, up six, uh, sorry, 8.67% for MSCI World up 15.6% so far uh, this year. World Government Bond Index having a good month, up 2.37% for the month, and just made it into the black territory so far uh, for the year, up 1.15% so far. And the S&P 500 Total Return Index up point, sorry, 8.81% so far, uh, very strong, and up 20.44% so far this year. All right, Mark, let's turn the attention to... Um, 
to your topics. They're really good, very interesting. Um, and the first one really is something that, um, because I think, uh, you know, if we look at the trend year so far, there's been a couple of defining moments. There's been the bank scandal and there's been that CPI number uh, from last week or whenever it was earlier this month. And those two months have been quite defining for the whole performance year, uh, so March and November so far. And you have um, kind of highlighted some of these uh, events uh, in your in your notes uh, to me. So why don't you just talk a little bit about what is actually going on in the markets? Well, actually, I probably sort of say that there are three defining moments. We'll sort of say the uh, the the bank debacle in the in the first quarter. Then the end of the second quarter, I think that the uh, uh, Fed raised rates. We we had sort of this different view on on where where the macro economy was coming in at the end of June, early July. Uh, then we had uh, which then spilled over into the uh, Jackson Hole sort of view that you know rates are going to be higher for longer. But this last uh, month has been really a, uh, an interesting period. So we had the big bond rally. 50 basis points in a month for the 10-year. We had a big macro stock rally, 45 uh, points in the SPY. And this is based on good macro news. Uh, and good macro news comes in a number of different forms. Uh, but this is without Powell suggesting that there's going to be a cut. So what, what we talked about in my initial comment, what am I studying? Well, here we have a big uh, macro rally and then especially on individual stocks, you get some very uh, strange behavior where good, uh, good stocks don't perform as, as well as bad stocks. Bad stocks in a, you know, we'll say the environment where, you know, the good macro environment uh, lifts all boats. The sort of bad companies are now sort of say like, that's where you want to put your money. But what you do is you, when you look at this rally in the macro rally, you look at the, in the environment, We've seen that CTAs have cut uh, their equity shorts by 80%. So, you know, I, I was reading something from UBS that that means that's the equivalent of about 60 to $70 billion of, of flow that's changed. They've cut their bond exposure 35 to 40%. It's another 50 to $60 billion. They've cut their dollar exposure. And then there's also been a big squeeze in the equity markets, especially that's affecting long, short, systematic equity managers. So short positions have been cut. That's uh, and and this is a reflection of the fact that you know the names that people thought were bad are now are now good. So uh, we'll say it's the rise of the zombies in the, in the equity market. So all of this has led to sort of a tremendous amount of flow, and that flow differences is now starting to you know have a greater impact on prices. And it tells you you got to you got to follow the flows. Yeah, but it also tells me uh, when I hear those numbers, and I have no idea where UBS gets these numbers from. I mean, are they just looking at the commitment of traders report or wherever they're, whatever they're doing? But of course, it kind of implies that trend followers would have been short equities overall, and I don't, I don't see that. Uh, certainly not from the people that I know best. Uh, I don't see that we were massively uh, short, and we certainly weren't short all markets, and actually probably net net. Uh, not even short at all. So, but it does, obviously, this situation does create dispersion, right? Because some managers would have had maybe shorter term timeframes and they could well have been short across many different markets, right? So, so these are interesting events. Uh, and I guess that's kind of part of why people tend to choose uh, two or three different trend followers because one trend follower is, is, is not the same as the, as the next one. Right. Time frame matters. Now, in terms of where people get these numbers, we'll sort of say that a lot of large banks who now sort of try to say, what's the size of uh, the CTA market? And then what they're trying to then determine, okay, what does that translate into the size of trading in given areas? Then they'll overlay a trend model on top of that to try to sort of determine what they think is the flows. So more than one bank has been trying to sort of, sort of, uh, will uh, say reverse engineer what they think CTAs are doing and then writing reports to talk about what that, uh, when flows will change. Uh, are they successful at that? Are they useful? I, I sort of follow some of that because it's indicative of some flow, but as you uh, rightly mentioned, is, is that it's hard to say exactly 
how much flow is occurring in the markets given the different time frames that the CTAs use. So clearly it's not just Andrew who's trying to uh, reverse engineer what uh, CTAs are doing. Um, but having said that, I mean, do you think they just do it because they want to have some information they can send out to their clients hoping that they will, oh, seeing, oh, they're going to be reducing by, you know, X amount of billions, so I better buy now. I mean, is it just for for generating, uh, you know, turnover at their own shop and, and generate commissions? Or why do we have this, in my opinion, slightly unhealthy interest in, in what CTAs are doing uh, to that degree? There's always been this flow interest, I'd sort of say, even in the uh, late 90s or mid 90s, some of the big banks were constantly trying to sort of say, can they uh, ascertain what the large trend followers are doing as a as a mechanism of flow? And I think that there's there's uh, they have a lot of the quant talent that they, that they have in house. So they're and they're building more of these uh, alt risk premium models. A lot of those alt risk premium models are based on momentum or trend. So you can go to a bank right now and you could do a swap that will get you a trend model. So given that they've built that infrastructure, now they're saying, if we can do this in-house, can we also then try to ascertain what the large CTAs are doing? So uh, it's a way to drum up more business, to get some more dialogue, to maybe get people to actually trade more. But this this has been an ongoing theme for, for a long time, but especially picked up pace in the last few years as they've done more trend swap business okay fair enough now you also talk in in your notes about that you are seeing some differences between the economic data and and the data that's coming from these uh, surveys and that may be causing some confusion uh in the markets can you elaborate a little bit on that well this is something that uh, when i started out i said i said i've spent a lot of time on macro 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 well what you have is you can have economic data that you could have. We call it the real data. That'll be the uh, yeah, information that is generated by the government. And then there's also survey data. And this is, you know, let's say the conference board surveys, University of Michigan survey. So it's survey of, of individuals or investors to say, you know, what do you think about expected inflation? What do you think about growth? What do you think about whether, you know, we're going to be in a positive environment or a negative environment? And usually those two move closely together. They're highly correlated. Survey data may be a little bit more noisy, but you know it does give you a good indication of what may be happening in the real economy. If you look at the more recent data, there's a huge divergence between the real data and the survey data. And I think you could even see this in the U.S., probably also in Europe, where you know the economic data seem like it's not too bad in some places, especially in the labor market. But if you survey individuals, they say, I'm not feeling re really good about the economy. So given there's a big disconnect between the real data and survey data, that's causing a lot of confusion in the marketplace. And that means it's harder to sort of determine, you know, what's going on or where the economy would be, would be going. Perfect example is the, uh, uh, Leading economic in indicators are down was, uh, for 19 months in a row. Uh, this is probably the same as 1994, 2008. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, you're sort of saying this is that uh, it, actual inflation numbers are coming down. You know, they're nowhere close to the 2% target. But if you look at over the last two years, it certainly isn't the, the expectation that it was going to be high for 5 plus percent survey data, people are still fairly negative. So, so there is this disconnect, and I think that it has a, uh, an impact on what people do with their decisions. So it's harder than get trends. It's, there's more uncertainty. Now, even though there's more uncertainty, we're not seeing it in some of the data. The, the VIX index is down, as, as you probably follow that. The move index is down. Uncertainty is down. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's harder to... to uh, explain what is going on in the real economy and how that's translating into market prices. So I understand that a lot of investors that are not trend followers and rules-based and price-driven will look at this data and make decision on it. I understand that. I also get your point about that there is this difference. And 
I guess one of the things that I've been wondering a little bit about has been after the last CPI number in the US. Now that comes from the BLS. Some people call it the BS, but let's call it the BLS. And then, so you have this inflation, this quote-unquote official inflation number. And when you dive into it, the numbers look really weird, like a 34% drop in health insurance. Uh, I don't think anyone has really experienced that in their own pocket. Uh, and there was some other real w- w- funky stuff going on. And, and also the way they allocate, I mean, they allocate twice as much to alcohol than they do to health insurance. Again, I'm not so sure that's really what's going on in, in the real economy. But then I heard in in just looking at that, someone, some people mentioned that these uh, you have these other uh, sort of um, data, uh, quote unquote, providers. I thought there was one called the C H A R D or something like that survey or whatever it was, where they sample I think 500 products that most people buy in their household, uh, or maybe it was 50 products, and they just look at that. And that inflation number, according to this article. Uh, was written by a previous guest on the on the podcast, was up like 9% or some, year over year. So clearly not the numbers that the official uh, officials would like us to believe in terms of inflation. I mean, do you, I mean, you, you clearly mentioned some surveys that are a little bit uh, out of sync, but have you also looked at inflation and whether you think that what we're being told from the officials are in any way, shape or form close to what the real inflation is? Because I, th- I would imagine that's pretty important for people who think that bonds are going to have a big rally from here or, or people who think that they're not. The inflation numbers are, uh, you know, head scratching in the sense is that uh, there are different groups called, you know, like the uh, Shadow Open Market Committee where they look at inflation, but they look at it based on the basket of goods that were applicable, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So you say like, and uh, what we use is hedonic pricing. So let's let's say we try to account for quality differences. So if a price goes up, but you get more quality, then it's possible that the price has gone down. If you take the basket from you know 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and you say, I run that forward, inflation is running at a, at a much higher number. So and, and so the perception that people have is that inflation is a lot worse. And certainly is, is that if someone said, you know, inflation was six, 7% last year, and now it's down to only 3%, you should, you should feel good about that. But you say like, well, I've just had a debasement of all of my wealth by 6% last year and another 3%, you know, I'm not getting that money back. So, so the surveys are sort of saying people don't feel any wealth, uh, wealthier. When or they don't feel any better just because inflation is now at three percent. Now, what does that mean for modeling in this in the systematic space, or what does that mean for trend following? Well, if you can't really put a lot of stock in the government data because it may be, uh, I'm not going to say manipulated, but because it's the way it's collected and the way it's presented may not give you a true story of what people are facing when they when they go out to the store and buy then you got to discount that which means is that then you say well the only alternative is to just follow prices themselves so but those prices are still being driven by perceptions and surveys perceptions in the data that's being presented so you can't really sort of separate these two but it does tell you is, is that I got to sometimes then go with just what the market is telling me as opposed to what the government is telling me because there's this disconnect. Yeah, no, and and I agree with that. It's, uh, of course, I guess what I'm noticing is just that, that, you know, the market is reacting, you know, quite strongly to these official numbers. um, And uh, so it does have a spillover effect, of course, as to how we react as price followers uh, on on these things. Um, So, yeah. Right. You, you make the good point is this is that on the one hand, you should say, I shouldn't put as much stock in this inflation numbers given because of the way it's calculated. But then we have a CPI print and the market goes crazy. So it's, it's, it's like there seems to be still putting a lot of value on those mac, uh, macro data. So even though you, on the one hand, you could sort of say, I don't believe these inflation numbers. I believe that the inflation may be higher. 
But at the same time, as I said, if I uh, ignore the print on the CPI announcement date, then that's going to add a lot of risk to my portfolio because uh, I can't, you know, because I, I got to take into account what the market is telling me in terms of the data. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's still the strength of what we do to a large extent is that we, even if the news doesn't sort of fit into our positions, we, we just, uh, you know, just follow along. Anyways, um, you did talk also a little bit about, uh, I guess we, we kind of uh, started on that discussion in terms of price signals at the moment, uh, where you do see some longer term uh, macro signals that are mixed, but then you have some short term positive signals overall. So is that from your own modeling that you see this dispersion at the at the moment? And I guess it ties into one of the first thing we talked about, and that is that this will probably lead, we will be seeing some dispersion in manager returns uh, in a year like this. Well, it's, you know, personal modeling, but then also if you look at the overall um, modeling across m- many firms, you know, both in what they write and what we see in the data, this is that we still see that there's a uh, potential for a soft landing or recession in 2024. Now, we go back a year ago, it was going to be in a second half of 2023. So it's being pushed out in the future. So the joke would be, yes, eventually we're going to get this recession. This is so, so I could say I'm forecasting a recession. I just can't, I'm not forecasting the time of when it'll occur. That being said, is that we, we've got some good macro data in the short run. We get some uh, good prints and information, but at the same time as is that underline, if you look at a longer term, this is that there's still, you know, the threat of a recession in the, in the first half or sometime in 2024. And so the issue when you think about macro data is, is that how do you discount the long run versus the short run? So I get a good CPI print that has a reaction, a positive reaction in the marketplace. But there's other data that may be more negative. So how do I discount that? All right. Then you brought up an, an interesting point uh, that I, you know, really can't wait to uh, to dive into. Um, the heading of this topic was really what are investors asking in meetings at the moment. So uh, I'm curious to hear what uh, what people are asking you in those meetings. Uh, uh, we can swap a few stories, perhaps. Sure. You know, especially if you get closer to the end of the year, is I will sort of say that another probably two, three weeks, most of the, uh, you know, visiting clients or talking to clients is going to shut down, you know, get ready for the holidays. You know, they're, you know, going to go in the bunker, make their final end of year decisions. So, you know, say November pre-Thanksgiving is a period that you want to try to go out, be a little bit more aggressive in seeing clients. And so, so you go into these meetings and I always think it's, really useful because if you talk to smart clients, they're going to make you smarter, but you say, well, what are they really asking for? And then, then they're asking, uh, they, they're getting very specific. Okay. How did you handle the early part of November when a lot of, you know, uh, systematic managers got hit hard at the macro, you know, what are you doing about it? How did you avoid it? And then they'll say, so be specific in t- terms of uh, how do you protect yourself from big reversals? And, and when when you started to talk about the beginning uh, of our discussion, we had the first quarter debacle with banks. We probably had the end of second quarter short squeeze situation, which carried over into the view on, on longer uh, uh, rates being uh, higher for longer. And now this, we'll call it the macro rally going on. So there is like, how do you protect yourself from that? So that's the number one question we hear from a lot of in- investors. Yeah. How, how do you protect yourself from that, Mark, if I can? Well, you know, and this gets to be uh, the issue where, you know, we start to get into philosophical differences is that is a, so that this opens up the Pandora's box, that you, which is ongoing. This is that it's a like, well, well, let me let me, best... let me let me interrupt you here. That's a very uh, uh, impolite to do, but just, just to set the scene, because of course that, a lot of people will be asking that question. But if it's a meeting with a systematic trend follower or systematic manager in general for the most part, I wonder whether that's a very good question to ask in the first place, right? Because it kind of assumes that 
we have some kind of magic wand whereby we can be always ahead of the market and when something happens out of the blue like a CPI print or a uh, SVB going down over a weekend we can somehow magically have the right positions on the next day even though markets were going in the complete opposite direction going into these events so I just want to preface with that because I think that's that you know it's a question like that is kind of difficult to to tackle uh, in a nice way because if you think you can do something uh, to avoid these small swans of some sort, then you can't really be systematic, in my opinion. Well, you can be uh, systematic, uh, but you know, because when you built your model, is is that you have to probably account like how do I minimize drawdowns, right? So when you uh, so when you think about any kind of model building from a first principle, you say like, well. Okay, what, there are a couple things you always want to try to do. You're going to say, how do I ensure that I protect principles? So that means how do you minimize drawdowns? You want to try to say that, how do I maximize my sharp ratio? So I'm saying, okay, I want to do that. I want to be able to sort of say, uh, how am I going to be uncorrelated with some of my peers, if possible? Or how do I be uncorrelated with the marketplace? That's the third. Fourth, you could say, like in specifically, you might sort of say, what do I do to make sure that I'm going to get, you know, some downside, uh, low correlation on the downside? So when you start with a model, it's almost as though you start at the end result and then in some sense try to work your way back. That's not the way everyone does it, but I think that's one way to do it. You say, this is it. So what am I trying to create? And then you say, how do I do that? And so when they ask the question, this is that, how do you protect yourself from big reversals? It may not sort of say, we're not expecting you to change who you are, but how do you sort of, how have you built a model in the first place to sort of protect yourself from, from these large events? So, and I'll say that the answer can't be is that we don't, that's not the right answer. So, uh, but in some sense, what I would sort of say that, uh, and I think that uh, we'll get to this in a little bit more detail is that Every model or every firm has personality. It's a strange thing to say because you think that, you know, when I build a systematic model, it's going to be, uh, uh, it's cold, it's very analytic, uh, you know, it's, it's very rules-based. But even when you do that, a model has personality, a firm has personality. And so when they ask the question, how do you protect yourself against big reversals or the bigger question when investors say, what's your edge? What they're really asking for is, what's your personality? Now, that's a strange word to use, but, but I think that it gets to the heart of the issue is this, that uh, you, you probably have had guests on here and you sort of say like, when you talk to them, with the way they build models is that reflects their personality. So, And I agree with that, of course, that you know we all do things differently, um, even if we... Uh, may be categorized as as you know being a certain kind of manager, so I I agree with that. Um, but on the other hand, there are certain things that you cannot model your way out of, right? And I think the and and this is goes to the I think a question that comes up every time we have quote unquote a difficult month, uh, whether it was Volmageddon February twenty eighteen, whether it was COVID whether it was actually Thanksgiving two years ago, oil dropped 12% uh, the day after or something like that, which was a major pain or caused a major pain on as a one-day event. But it was the beginning of one of the strongest periods for trend followers uh, happened exactly on that day. So I think the answer, the, the, the true answer is, yes, there are certain things we can do to minimize the imp impact on on uh, some of these events, even though each event is different. So, of course, you can't give any guarantee. But there probably are certain things you can do, unless, of course, it's uh, over a weekend, uh, SVB, uh, etc., and, and even a, a CPI print. I mean, these are very difficult things to, to, uh, to take account of. Anyways, in my experience, every time you... I mean, so the true answer is, if someone asks you, can't you do something about these uh, unpleasant days or a couple of days, a couple of weeks? 
I think the an- the answer is yes. However, there's a cost to doing it. Because I'm sure all of our peers in this industry will have looked at this and they will have concluded that, well, if we try to make the journey a little bit uh, less painful on uh, during certain events, it's just going to cost us down the road in terms of long-term performance, right? So this is what I meant by um, when I hear the, the question being raised, you know, in that way, you know, what do you, what do, you do to protect yourself? Well, I think the, 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 the honest answer is, well, uh, there are certain things that we have to accept is part of this journey. And it could well be a couple of bad months or a couple of bad days. And if we were to do something to improve on that, it's just going to cost you uh, significant amounts of performance compounded over 10, 20 years. Right. And and we'll sort of say this when talking to clients, is this is a sequence of almost three questions. So the first question is, what's your edge? And, and uh, sometimes that's hard to answer because you don't know what everybody else is doing. So, so it's just a, so in some sense, uh, talking about edge is, validating what you do. Can you explain what you do in a good, uh, clear narrative? Okay. Can you, in some sense, show your personality? Then the next two questions that most investors will ask is, is that tell me the periods when you're going to do well, what's the environment you're going to do well. And then the next question is what are the environments that you do poorly? And sometimes this is that in, uh, depending on your, your structure, you say like, well, you know, if there's a big macro reversal and it occurs in a very short time horizon, and let's say my time horizon for my model is fairly long or longer, like in a lot of this intermediate trend follower, then you're going to have a situ- situation. There is going to be a disconnect between the two. There's nothing you can do about it at some level. So, uh, but you, you could talk about diversification. Uh, you can talk about other things you can do. At the heart of the issue is, is that you say, here are the environments I'm going to do well, and I know thyself, and here are the uh, environments I'm not going to do well, and I know thyself. And in some sense, as you put it, there are certain risks that I have to take on those bad environments in order to be able to exploit the good environments. So when people ask that question, right, they ask the manager in isolation, right? So say, oh, you're down 5% this month, or you're down 10%, whatever. In March, you were down ten percent. Yeah, not great, right? But 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 we're really looking at this in isolation, right? Because in March, equities and bonds were up strong. In November, equities and bonds are up strong. So when you look at it on a portfolio level, actually, not a lot of damage. In fact, I would argue that probably a portfolio, even with a healthy allocation to trend, which is never going to be big enough to be meaningful with most investors, but, you know, it, it, you know, it can. But even if you had a 25% allocation to trend, you're probably still going to be up in March and be up in November. Because this year, interestingly enough, uh, stocks and bonds have, to a large extent, been positively correlated, but we've had a very strong negative correlation to equities and bonds so far this year. Right. Well, this gets back to my old adage, is, is, is that uh, you really don't have diversification not unless you have some losers in your portfolio. At any given time, is is that if everything you're doing is making money, then you really don't have diversification. So, uh, so, so, and in from a portfolio level, you say like, well, if I'm making money in stocks and bonds, and let's say I have a trend follower, and I'm not making money there, well, that what what you're really sort of saying is that I really do have diversification, and that even applies to so. You know, I, I use a, uh, with my partners, we use sort of an ensemble approach. So we, we have the combination of 23 different strategies. We're using 18. On any given day, I, I will sort of say that a number of them are going to lose money. I expect that. If it's not happening, then I've done something wrong. And the same sense applies to from a, a higher portfolio level, which you just mentioned. So so I think what, so, so maybe the, the, uh, the, the question is back to the, person asking the question, you know, what can you do about, you know, these uh, drawdowns that occurs uh, from time to time? The question is, why would you want me to do anything about them? Right. 
they're going to ask the question because in some sense, this is that uh, there's, there's two levels. This is that, uh, if they're talking to you and you're a trend follower, that means that they've already decided that they want to do trend following to some degree. Okay. Uh, now the question is which one should they choose? So there's the absolute question. Do I want this type of strategy? Then there's the relative question, which one of the different choices I have. So if I'm a systematic, you know, uh, you know, manager, question if someone's talking to me, they've probably already decided that they want to have some systematic exposure. Now the question is, who should you choose? So now you have to sort of say, why are you different than somebody else? And what do you do differently in those, those sort of extreme events? And if you sort of say, well, here's what I do or don't do when there are large macro reversals, which we had in the event, then you say, now, in exchange for that, where I might do poorly in November, here's the other environments where I'm going to do better. And in some sense, I have to take some of that risk, like early November, in exchange for something that I'm going to get if and over the longer run. Yeah. Well, thanks for allowing me to be a little bit dev devil's advocate here. Of course, uh, we we know that that is the question that people ask, and and we strive to come up with uh, reasonable uh, answers. Of course, uh, not necessarily the answers I just gave. Anyways, so these periods get a lot of attention from investors, of course. But you brought up a topic about actually, there's also things that don't get a lot of attention uh, from from investors. Can you enlighten us uh, on that? Well, a couple of things that don't get, uh, you know, uh, attention is, is that this, uh, well, f first is that the attention of personality, which we talked about. And then, and then I think that uh, tied with personality is I think the type of knowledge that often is given with a manager. And we're going to talk about it in attention itself in just a second. So, so there's two types of knowledge that you have is there's explicit knowledge, the knowledge that you can get from a, from a book, either reading or a classroom. And then there's, uh, that, then there, there's tacit knowledge and the tacit knowledge is the knowledge that is hard to convey that you gain from experience. So in some sense, you know, whether, uh, what, when people say, well, you know, tell me about what makes you different. I would like to say that I have more tacit knowledge. You know, other like managers that, that have been around for decades also have more tacit knowledge. That this is the knowledge that it's hard to put in a book, but actually can be uh, added into a model that will add value. Uh, it's the difference between, okay, uh, we'll say explicit knowledge is when you buy a cookbook. You'd say like, it, there's all the rules that, that but the, tacit knowledge is that knowledge that a chef has. So you could read the cookbook, but that doesn't mean you're going to replicate what you get in the restaurant. The chef is what matters. And I think that oftentimes when we talk about managers, we don't, uh, we don't, we don't sort of put some, uh, thinking about what the, who the chef is when we may, uh, when we think about systematic managers and that, uh, that does matter. And how do we I don't know if you've thought about this, and maybe this is where we're going, but I think it's actually a very valid point. And I think there are certain things where you just think, well, you know, the way that he or she thinks about this problem led to them making some slightly different choices that actually could make a really important improvement to to uh, what they do uh, in our space, for example. I imagine so. But we also know the power of narrative. We know the power of storytelling. So how do we take this sort of slightly elusive, not kind of specifically data, um, you can't really put it in, in a number, right? That he's a seven and the other ones are a five. Well, you can't really say that. So how do you, how do you best explain this, which I think is an interesting uh, observation, this uh, type of knowledge that is somewhat uh, elusive, um, no, no, that's uh, that. This is the uh, the real art of uh, of marketing and going out and seeing clients. Is is being able to give a clear narrative, and we'll sort of uh, we'll talk about this in a, in a very broad sense in just a second. But we'll sort of say part of the narrative. We'll say in in, in you know systematic trend following has been we'll sort of say 
uh, it was like, well, we're uncorrelated. Then it was the narrative was what were sort of crisis alpha. And, and it's sort of the narrative has been honed a little diff differently more recently. Uh, part of that discussion with, them, uh, with investors is that they want to try to understand your narrative. And then can you be able to clearly explain who you are and how you differentiate yourself? Now, one of the behavioral biases that we find or a bias that we often uh, see with many people is that there's the illusion of explanatory depth. So when people sort of say, well, uh, do you know how electricity works? And you say like, yeah, yeah, I understand it. And then you say like, well, can you really explain how it's done? And then they'll say like, yeah, it's the power plant somewhere. <laughs> and then I plug in my, uh, my computer and it works. So uh, that we, we, we think we know how things work when we really do not. And so part of the discussion of narrative when you go see clients is, to, is that they're trying to see what's your explanatory depth and your job as a narrative is to try to provide that. Now, uh, I think from a very broad sense, let's talk about how, this, uh, how the narrative or, or explanatory depth has been applied, especially in momentum and trend following. And I think that this is where we get into this whole issue of uh, attention. Uh, one of the things I was doing is, is I try to keep up on the academic literature. And as I said, if you look at just the, in the, the last issue of the journal of finance, for example, now these papers have already been around for a while by the time they actually get in a journal, but we'll sort of say that the explanation that is being given now for why momentum, why trend following works. And I think a lot of systematic models in general work is the fact is, is what we call the inattention problem that because markets or individuals in markets, the investors are inattentive, then that's, it causes a slow speed of adjustment. The slow speed of adjustment means that there could be trends in the markets. There can be momentum and that this is what those systematic managers are trying to exploit. They're trying to exploit the problem of market inattention. Now, I'm not saying this is laziness. In some sense, efficient markets or rational expectations say this shouldn't occur. But when you look at reality, it seems as though that we get a lot of evidence that it actually is occurring. So that there is a slow response to, uh, to information. Now, how, how do we look at this or when, what do we see? Well, you know, one study has shown is, is that when you put on a screen, so a list of stocks, if you put a lot of winners over the last two weeks and then a random stock, is that most people believe that then that random stock would also be a winner. So they're not focusing a lot of inattention. They just sort of say like, okay, if it's, if it's clustered with this other names, well, they must be related. What we're also finding is, is that, uh, you know, in terms of inattention, is, is that they're finding out that some of the smart money is actually sort of dumb. And in particular is, is that there's a study that we look at institutional money managers. We, and those would be ones who are running portfolios that are uh, above a half a billion dollars. What they find out is that the smart money has very good skill on their buying decisions, but they don't show a lot of attention to their selling. Their selling is, is almost as if it was random. So again, this is that smart money is having dumb behavior because there's a lack of attention to the selling decisions. We also find this in, for example, in, in earnings expectations. Earnings expectations adjust slowly over time. And because that there, there's this slow response to information, and we can see that in how data gets updated that we're seeing that that actually will then lead to slow adjustments in prices. Because if you if your expectations are slow to adjust, then prices will be slow to adjust. So, I mean, obviously in the last, since you and I started in this industry, the amount of information we get is obviously, I don't know how many times it's uh, more today than it used to be. That kind of bodes well, I imagine, for what we do, because it's impossible essentially to keep up with all that information. So as you said, it may not be laziness, but you know, it takes time to 
to go through all of that? Well, what we have found or what the researchers have found is, is that probably the speed of adjustment has uh, improved. So, so uh, whether it's be Bloomberg, other news sources, this is that, yeah, we're, we're, we're probably adjust quicker to information in 2023 than we did in 1993, certainly more than 1983. So, so, so that if we look over the span of time, that speed of adjustment, or we've got more attentive than what we uh, were before, because we have more tools, we have better tools to be able to assess information. At the same time, as this is it that we're still not there. That we're at, that you know we still have inattention problems, and that actually leads to the opportunity for you to use systematic approaches to make money. So, so in some sense, when you think about, let's go back to the systematic narrative. This applies to trend momentum or any manager. You say like, what do I do? What's my edge? My edge is, is that I'm better able to take in uh, information, assess that information quickly, and then generate a decision based on it. And I, I call it the return factory. The return factory is more efficient than let's say a discretionary person. And because of that, that's where we create edge or we create opportunities. And we'll sort of say that some markets are less efficient or have less attention than others. Probably would sort of say that uh, uh, you look at commodities markets is that we have a lot of natural, you know, hedgers, but we'll sort of say that that hedging behavior is almost slow to react. So people don't put on a full hedge. They may take time to adjust to new information. So that creates, you know, the opportunity for trends. If you look at equities, you look at the range of stocks, this is that, you know, Probably the speed of adjustment is pretty fast for the like those uh, top ten, you know, the top seven stocks, the big mega caps. You go be below that is that you don't have as probably as much attention. You suppose especially go into the small caps. There's probably even less attention, and there's more opportunity for you to exploit that. You know, it's very fascinating to me what you say, and of course I can't dispute the fact that we may be faster to react today than we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. I, don't, I think that's hard to dispute. But that suggests to some extent, and I think that has been part of the narrative by um, some participants in our industry, that that bodes well uh, for shorter-term models and that they should kind of, um, you know, you do better than longer-term models. But it's just not what the data shows and I don't think that we can say that longer-term trend following uh, is doing worse in any shape or form than shorter-term models. So have you thought about that kind of slight contradiction? Because I can, I think people have been swayed by the narrative saying, well, that clearly must mean that shorter-term models, that's where it's going, right? That, I've heard that even from you know, some of our friends in the industry. But it's just not what the data shows. So how do we square those two things? Uh, that's a very interesting uh, idea, and I probably would sort of say in, I'm in your camp. Is they say like in some sense we should expect that the faster models do better. They haven't. So you say like, well, there's something wrong with this idea because if you believe that speed of adjustment is is increasing. He said, like, well, the faster models should be do, doing better. And so one of these papers that is looking at inattention and especially what they found is, is that the response of expectations is faster when there's higher volatility. Then what he did is he looked at longer term and shorter term models. And then he said, like, shorter term models do better in high volatility environments. Okay. So but they're actually sort of, because then the speed of adjustment is faster in high volatility, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but that's what we find is, is that expectations of earnings actually is more responsive in higher volatility environments. So what he's saying is, is that what we see is that in a high vol environment, short-term does better than long-term, okay? But in, in uh a longer you know, over longer term horizons that are normal environments, long term would do better than short term. So 
I think we need to do more research in this area about the switching between time length. But we will sort of say that uh, long term, if you had one single approach, you know, intermediate trend following will, will be better. But if you look at conditional on the environment, we'd also know is that when there's a spike in volatility, you're probably going to get not, I don't want to say a momentum crash, but you're going to get more reversals. That's as you get penalized to some degree, the longer term models in a high volatility spiky environment. So now the question comes in is how do we, how do we then, you know, sort of deal with shorter term and how do we sort of blend the two together? Now, some may say, I don't think it can be done. So therefore I'm just, this is the risk I'm going to have to take. But I, uh, but the data suggests that there's that flipping between trend, uh, look back based on the vol environment may have some benefit or, or. Well, I was just going to say that I've actually come across that narrative as well, where some people have in their models, some kind of switching between time length based on volatility. But then again, when I look at their performance, I don't really see, you know, anything that suggests that statistically that is true. Well, that it has worked, let's put it that way. Um, and it would almost be the holy grail of investing, right? If you could somehow switch ahead of time uh, so that you always had the optimal time frame. <laughs> I mean, that would be fantastic. Uh, maybe we, with all this AI, you know, you never know. <laughs> That's another narrative and I'm, you know, being a little bit, you know, cheeky now because again uh, that's another trend so to speak and that is that ai is going to resolve all these problems and make everything easier and better and and so on and so forth but i do find that people are often swayed in our industry and with many things um, by kind of the latest i wouldn't call it gadget that's not what i mean but the latest innovation perhaps we could say with even within investing even when, even within trend following, right? You come up with something and say, yeah, well, now we can do all of this. And you automatically think, well, because it is new, it must be better. But I really, I really encourage people to kind of go back and study the long-term track records of some of these managers, because I actually think that that may not actually be the case in our industry in particular, so to speak, where some of these more universal uh, time-tested principles that we adhere to actually are far superior, or at least superior, uh, than than a lot of the, or, uh, than most of this new innovative stuff that comes out. I couldn't be more in agreement. This is that there are fads and fashions in research. So when you get back to when we were talking a little bit about personality, part of the personality is is that you know how you account for the different fads or fashions that you see currently. So, but two interesting pieces of, of research in, that uh, were also uh, recently published in the Journal of Finance. This is that, that uh, perhaps it gives us heart that we should go back to being traditionalists. It also is sort of, but it also incorporates some of the new ideas. So one of them is, is that, that, it focuses in on just looking at the direction of stocks, not the uh, momentum. So you just say, like, can I just be able to get the direction right? Okay. And if I could sort of say, like, I'm trying to forecast the direction, uh, not looking at momentum, but then I try to measure the likelihood of a direction. And if you create long, short portfolios just based on direction, so, so the simplest of all things is that, I'm not, uh, and when you think about most trend followers are just directional guys. So you say like, hey, if price is above the moving average, that all I care about is direction. I'm not caring about what's the, you know, uh, mean squared error of my forecast. I'm just f thinking about direction. That it, that actually outdoes a momentum portfolio. So if you sort according to momentum or you sort just on the likelihood of direction, the directional forecasts of stocks actually do better, especially over the last 20 years, which then tells you, keeping it simple, just sort of saying, trying to figure out the direction is actually fundamentally the right way to look at things. The other study that was also done, this is that uh, in terms of fads and fashions. So some researcher used some uh, machine learning. They use uh, 
convolutional uh, neural nets, CNN. So not not the news uh, service, but the, the it's it's a technique, and and it's it looks at uh, you know images, and so it's trying to forecast an image, not a specific point estimate. So what they did is is that they said like, well, what is the image we're going to look at? So let's look at a sequence over time of open, high, low, close. Okay. And when you think about it, this is that for a lot of people who are technicians, the bread and butter is looking at a chart of open, high, low, close, right? So uh, now the uh, systematic manager say, how do I use that information in a very disciplined rules-based approach? But a lot of just technicians say, hey, I look at the chart, I'm looking at the image and it's going to tell me something. So lo and behold, this is that we look at this new, uh, this machine learning technique, the convolutional uh, neural nets. So it's looking at the open, high, low, close over a period of time as an image. And we try to make predictions based on that image. And they say, well, lo and behold, it actually does pretty well. It actually beats some uh, simple trend, uh, trend models and some momentum models. Now, I'm not saying, saying that everybody should now go out and use you know, this type of uh, convolutional neural net, but it tells you is that just looking at the image, looking at a lot of information to try to describe what's happening in price is actually, which is fundamental to what people have been doing for decades, actually does work. The great thing about this is that we won't know the answers to this until many years from now, um, but it is interesting and it probably has a lot to do with uh, what we also benefit from, which is human behavior, that there is just this tendency to think and and believe that something that's newer uh, must be better. Um, but uh, I wonder if there's a day where we realize that actually things that are all tried and tested um, is, is perhaps um, what they should be looking for. We'll see. We have about five minutes left or so, um, Mark. Is there, a th you know, we and and you brought along actually more topics than we maybe can cover today. But is there one uh, left that you want to um, want to dive into before we wrap up? Well, the one that uh, you know, I've uh, I, two areas I want to look at is, is that uh, one is is it a sort of like a uh, a plug for myself and my partners? We're having a paper come out in a journal of investing that we looked on back testing. And so, because as a relatively new manager, you'd sort of say like, we go in there, we'll show some live trading and then we'll also show us our back tested numbers. And then they'll say, well, like, uh, I don't believe a back test. So we say, or I've never met a bad back test is the, is the uh, answer that the allocators will give. Or, and if they do see a back test, they'll say like, ah, my rule of thumb is I'll discount that by 50%. And so, so so we tried to address that issue by trying to say, like, how do you do a, a good back test? And that should be applied as a, a sort of a standard operating procedure if you're uh, internally. And also, how do you sort of describe in a narrative to someone who's a skeptic what you do in, as a back test? So we think that for anybody who's building models, both internal or, or showing it to external uh, investors, this backtest issue should be addressed. So, so I think that that's one thing that we've been spending time on. The other is, is, is that I will sort of say this, that we spend a lot of time, especially in the, in the last few months on uh, transactions cost and the, and the total cost of slippage and such. And I think that we've really come to a conclusion after we sort of study and we look at uh, our live performance versus theoretical. And we look at that gap between the two, because that's what might true cost is that that's actually a source of hidden alpha and a lot of uh, systematic managers probably don't spend as much time talking about you know how do they minimize t costs because for every dollar i save on costs or every dollar i save on on slippage that's money that's going to the investor's pocket and though and you think from your incentive uh, point of view that's also going into my pocket so that's almost as though like that's a cheap source of alpha if I could do transactions cost better. Spend a lot of time on that. And I think that better execution is, you know, we talk maybe a little bit about it, but I probably sort of say that that's something that uh, when we get back to the issue of personality, edge, what makes you different, how you think about it or how you try to minimize transactions costs is an important part 
of who you are as a manager. I agree with that. Uh, I, just one comment, and 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 I'll see where where that lands. Um, I mean, I would have thought that most billion dollar plus managers they do spend time and think hard on how to minimize slippage, right? And whether your slippage is fifty basis points per year or twenty five basis points, there is a limit. And deep down, I would think that a really good way of minimizing slippage is not to overstate your capacity. Right. Absolutely. This is that the issue of capacity is something that oftentimes, like as a relatively new manager, people have said, well, what's your capacity? We throw out a number. And I think that we've tried to systematically uh, address this issue. But then you really sort of say like, well, I've just thrown out a number of here's what I think my capacity is. And I say like it might be $3 billion or such. He said, like, well, what's going to happen when I get to one and a half billion dollars? <laughs> you know, I might have to rethink this because the market situation may change. Now, getting back to the issue of, of transactions cost, yeah, there's a limit to how much you can cut those because you can't go below zero. So, uh, but at the same time, is, is that so we spend some time when our, some of our conversations with investors that will show them our actual transactions costs versus our assumptions and whether we're beating this. And we put try to put it in a nice chart. And people will tell us, they say like, wow, this is interesting. A lot of our managers who come in here don't talk about, you know, how they minimize transactions costs. I'm sure that you and everybody else is doing it internally but whether they share all that information of how they're minimizing that cost with investors, that's a, that's a different story. So, so they're looking at it, but are they sharing that information? Okay. Well, not to leave people on a complete cliffhanger. I think we may come back to some of this. Just a couple of quick questions that I would love to know the answer to. One, what do you think a decent, reasonable amount of slippage defined by the price you want to execute at and the actual price you executed at should be for a manager? And two, what would be your top two things that you think managers should be doing or is are doing to minimize slippage? Right. So um, one is, is, is that let's try to try to, how do you minimize slippage? Is, is that one is trying to understand the capacity of what you can be able to trade in a given market. This is that in a prior life, we'll sort of say that oftentimes when we wanted to do some large trades, it would take more than one day to put all of that on. We are trying to try to minimize the impact of what we are doing. Because when you think about it, if you're a large CTA and you actually sort of like push prices with your behavior because you're large, then you're going to use those prices in your model to try to figure out the next signal. So you want to make sure that your behavior doesn't actually distort prices because those prices are then going to be used for you to figure out your next signal. So, so the idea is to try to say, is how do you minimize the uh, uh, market impact? And I think that that's so, something that's it's very personal, but at the same time is, is, is critical. So, so what's the time frame you use? How much uh, volume you you represent for in a given time frame, and part of this is when you break down your trading. Is it are you a market maker or are you a market taker? So your market maker is that you're providing liquidity to the market, and that might be that you're trading reversals. If you're a market taker, then that usually is is that you're a trend trend follower, you're a taker. So so that's going to have a different impact on slippage. So it's understanding. What your size is relative to you know a given time frame, what's the markets you trade, whether you're a market maker or taker, and so so those are all issues that you have to think about. How do you actually do this? This is it, or how do you measure this? I think that the most of our managers have minimized the cost of brokerage. So the brokerage cost is that that that's that's not what we're talking about. The what we're talking about is. How do you minimize the market impact? And that may mean that you have to do some, what we call A-B testing. You have to try different types of execution strategies and then see what the impact would be and sort of so, so compare the differences. Fair enough. Last question, which is one of the, my previous questions. I just want to see if I can pin you down here. 
you've been around for a long time. You uh, you probably may not remember, but you probably have a good idea of what the slippage was back in the John Henry days. But nowadays, things have changed a lot. Nowadays, if you were to look at a manager and you were only to judge them on their capabilities of execution, et cetera, et cetera, what do you think is a reasonable number to have as quote-unquote slippage? And I know it's defined in many different ways, but just as a simple thinking of, well, it's kind of a little bit, it's not quite where we wanted to uh, execute our, our trade. It's a little bit worse. So that's how I define slippage. It should be, uh, you know, less than, uh, you know, uh, less than a half a percent. And so I, you know, I will sort of say that, uh, uh, and it depends. Uh, so you're trying to pin me down and I'm not going to give you a direct <laughs> answer because it depends on market to market. So, so I'd sort of say, I will tell you this, this is that, uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because when you ask me this question and I can't give you a straight answer, it's because it's a complex question. So, so tell you what, you come back with the same question on our next, uh, our next podcast and I'll give you a, a, the, I'll, I'll give you a, a set number. So how about that for a cliffhanger? Oh yes. I won't give you a direct answer today, but, exactly. I, but I will the next time you, people, uh, you know, uh, listen in. Absolutely. And, and this is very likely to happen, Mark. You have to remember <laughs> to bring it up because I may have completely forgotten. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm writing down in the notes, but okay. that means I now have to come up with a definitive answer. So oh, you're well, putting me on the spot. <laughs> I think you're allowed to be given a range, but I'm just curious. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. uh, this was wonderful, Mark. Uh, as always, you, uh, you, you bring up some interesting points and maybe topics that, uh, you know, is not discussed in so many other places and uh, you break it down so it's understandable and... Uh, uh, coming back to this, uh, uh, you know, having clear narrative and all of that stuff. You do a wonderful job. So thank you for that. Uh, I really do uh, appreciate it. Um, next week, uh, I'm joined by Andrew. Uh, so uh, now we will be talking about maybe uh, one of the new shiny things in our industry, namely replication. But there could be other things. It very much depends on what questions we get. So I would encourage you to send us some uh, questions uh, to info at toptradersonplug.com and I'll do my best uh, to wiggle that into the conversation uh, next week. And, of course, if you uh, want to hear me more of, uh, of these uh, conversations, it would always help if you would uh, share the podcast with your friends and family and colleagues, as well as rate and review them on uh, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you listen to your podcast. We really do appreciate that. From Mark and me, Thank you ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.